Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, we jump right into our program, which will challenge us to better understand unexplained historical phenomena while remaining faithful to the Word of God. Here's James Collins and Larry Spargimino to reveal the marginal mysteries that are all around us. The Shroud of Turin, Nostradamus, UFOs, Pyramids, the Loch Ness Monster, the Bermuda Triangle, the La Brea Tar Pits, Giants, Aliens, Bigfoot, Atlantis, and Dragons. What do these mysterious topics have in common, other than being episodes of the television series The X-Files? Well, each of these topics is discussed in the book, Marginal Mysteries. The book was originally released in 2000. I remember when the book came out, I purchased a copy and I loved it. That's why I was so excited when last month Beacon Street Press published an updated edition of Marginal Mysteries. Marginal Mysteries was a collaboration between various authors. Today, to spotlight the new edition of Marginal Mysteries, we're going to listen to portions of an audio interview with two of those authors, Noah Hutchings and Larry Spargimino. Marginal Mysteries was written to give a biblical perspective on the strange, unusual, and the paranormal. Let's listen now as Noah Hutchings explains the idea behind the book. You know, there are some things that we wonder about, like the mystery of the La Brea tar pits, and many other things like Atlantis. Was there ever a lost Atlantis? UFOs, or how did the ancients build the pyramids? And we wonder about those things, and we search the scriptures to find if there is any answer to these mysteries provided for in scripture, or at least alluded to. And there are some peripheral mysteries that we think about that we are afforded some light in the Bible. We don't say that we're going to know the answers to all mysteries until we are with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, and then all things will be made known to us. But I think it is challenging to consider these mysteries in light of any answer that we might find or any evidence alluded to these mysteries in the scriptures. For me personally, I am fascinated by the items discussed in marginal mysteries such as Bigfoot, UFOs, and the Shroud of Turin. But at first glance, I was unsure as to why the authors included a chapter about the La Brea Tar Pits. The La Brea Tar Pits is an active research site in urban Los Angeles that was formed around a group of tar pits where natural asphalt has seeped up from the ground and preserved the bones of trapped animals. Let's listen now as Dr. Larry Spargimino explains why you should be interested in the mystery of the La Brea Tar Pits. I was certainly very much impressed with the La Brea Tar Pits. I had an opportunity to go there a few months ago, but can you imagine what it would be like in downtown Los Angeles, a very, very busy city, but to find monstrous mastodons and mammoths and 3,500-pound sloths? Well, we do know that this was a typical scene in Los Angeles, California, not millions of years ago, but probably about 4,000 years ago. 
the skeletons of all of these animals. Actually, hundreds of thousands are in the La Brea tar pits over which downtown Los Angeles was built. A few of these tar pits are open today for purposes of study and viewing. But they do remind us that the Bible is true because I found in working on this chapter and in visiting the tar pits that the tar pits support the young earth view that we as creationists hold. And I was very excited to find out that there are so many proofs there and so many supports for what the Bible does teach that I was very gratified. I think this is a marginal mystery, but it certainly sheds a lot of light on some very important issues, especially creationism. Okay, so Dr. Spargimino explained why the La Brea tar pits should interest you and me, but where do we find anything like a tar pit in the Bible? Once again, here is Larry Spargimino to answer that question. Well, as we look at La Brea, we see that La Brea is something like what is mentioned in Scripture. For example, in Genesis 14, we read of a great battle that rose as the result of a rebellion against Kedar Laomer, and that's in Genesis 14:4. And then uh, verse 10 describes the area. It says, "In the Vale of Siddim was full of slime pits." And this is actually speaking, if we look at the basic Hebrew word kimar, really means asphalt. We have this kind of thing mentioned in the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, verse 3. It was used for waterproofing the Ark of Bulrushes that we read of in Exodus chapter 2, verse 3, in which Moses was placed by his mother. So we know from the Bible and in the ancient world that this kind of thing was very prevalent in ancient times. Of course, the fact that it is asphalt and it's a petroleum substance would provide the preservation of the animals. That's why it's such a wonderful sight, because these animals that would normally be destroyed by rodents or animals that might eat bone and might eat their teeth and so forth, these things were preserved from the natural processes of decay. So this is a very interesting area and very significant. In the book Marginal Mysteries, there is a chapter on the mystery of Atlantis. In this audio clip, Dr. Spargimino reminds us that most of what we know about Atlantis comes from the writings of Plato. I think we ought to point out that though there are some 20,000 volumes written about Atlantis, they all go back to an original account written by the Greek philosopher Plato. And Plato lived from 427 to 347 B.C. in his dialogues between Timaeus and Critias. So it certainly is not directly mentioned in Scripture. However, of course, there have been some people who have equated some kind of a volcanic explosion on Thera, or as we know it today, Santorini, occurring maybe about 1447 B.C. They've equated that with some of the events that the book of Exodus mentions regarding the plagues and the darkening of the sky and the ashes and whatnot coming out of the sky. So there does seem to be somewhat of a connection in that light. But it is a marginal mystery, and we certainly want to underscore mystery, because even the question as to where is it, some say it's in the Atlantic Ocean, others say it's in the Mediterranean. There are a few who even say it's in the Indian Ocean. So we need to at least begin by underscoring the fact that it is a mystery. Nevertheless, there have been numerous individuals who have spent 
years investigating this whole account of Atlantis, whether or not it's true, and how it impacts upon the Bible and Bible truth. And one of the things I think we need to certainly remember about this is that this is an account coming from Plato initially, and whatever we find in archaeology or in some of these other accounts, certainly we must not allow it to critique the Bible or to correct the Bible, because the Bible alone is God's inerrant and infallible word given to teach us the truth in matters of faith and practice. Dr. Spargimino continued to discuss Atlantis, and that led to the next mystery, the mystery of the Bermuda Triangle. Is the Bermuda Triangle the home of demonic spirits? Well, I think we need to realize that there is a lot in the Bible about the sea. So, first of all, just think of what Scripture says about the sea and realize that the Bermuda Triangle is in the Atlantic Ocean. For example, the sea has been used by God as an instrument of judgment in the book of Jonah. In the tribulation period, God will vent his fury on the sea and destroy a good source of the earth's bounty, according to Revelation 16. And then the prophet Isaiah seems to equate the destruction of Leviathan in that day with something in the future, that is, some kind of eschatological victory. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah 27.1, the scripture says, In that day, the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon, that is in the sea. Now, of course, we know from the book of Revelation and elsewhere in the scripture that many have perished in the sea, both in the past and in the present. But the Bible tells us in Revelation 20, verse 13, that a day is coming when the sea will give up her dead. So I really believe that there is some spiritual significance regarding the sea. In fact, Revelation 21, 1 says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. So in that ideal future heavenly condition, there will be no more sea. And of course, we know in heavenly glory there are no more demons, no longer any persecution of God's people. So the sea certainly in the light of Scripture has a tremendous significance as far as being a place of darkness and the abode of demon spirits. I'm James Collins, and today we are listening to portions of an interview with Bible prophecy teachers and broadcasting legends Larry Spargimino and Noah Hutchings. The interview was recorded back in 2000 when their book, Marginal Mysteries, was released. Recently, these presentations were found in the Watchmen on the Wall archives, and with the release of the new edition of Marginal Mysteries, we thought it would be interesting to listen to portions of them today. If you would like to have a copy of this fascinating book, Marginal Mysteries, you can order it right now by calling 1-800-652-1144, or you can always order online at swrc.com. The writers of Marginal Mysteries were not afraid to address controversial subjects. One of the more controversial topics in the book is about giants. Let's listen now as Noah Hutchings and Larry Spargimino answer the question, who were the sons of God of Genesis 6? The Bible speaks of giants who lived before the flood, and they were the offspring of the daughters of men and the sons of God. Now, who were the sons of God? Were they men out of the godly line of Seth, as some believe, or were they 
angelic beings who we read in Peter and also Jude who left their first estate. Dr. Spargimino, what about the sons of God of Genesis 6? Well, Dr. Hutchings, a son of God really means a direct creation of God. Now, Adam was created a son of God because God made him. He had no parents, no human parents. So the first man had no human father. And as a matter of fact, we read in Luke 3:38, quote, Adam, which was the son of God. Here we see certainly that this implies direct divine agency. Of course, after Adam sinned, all men were born in sin, and no man between Adam and Jesus Christ could claim a son relationship with God. Therefore, all references in the Old Testament to sons of God, except two or three scriptures where the redemption of Israel is prophesied when the Messiah comes, all of those references really refers to angels. Angels were directly created by the Lord. As a matter of fact, we read in Job 1, verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. So here, Dr. Hutchings, it's obvious that the meaning here is the angelic host. This is not speaking about the sons of Seth or about human beings. Now, the angels are also called the sons of God in Job 38, 7. And just for the sake of time, we won't read that scripture. But surely, just by the analogy of scripture, in comparing scripture with scripture, both the New Testament and the Old Testament, the sons of God refers to the angelic host. You can go to the genealogy down to Jesus Christ in Luke. And Adam is son of God. After Adam, no son of God. They were sons of men. Then we come to Jesus Christ, for the Father said, This is my beloved son. So Jesus was the only begotten son of God. Adam was the only directly created son of God. So between them, all men were in sin. Jesus was without sin and... We become sons of God by adoption through a new birth. John says, now are we the sons of God. That was a new revelation. It wasn't applied to anyone between Adam and Jesus Christ because all were born in sin, all were born of men, but now then we are born of the Holy Spirit, a new birth whereby we become sons of God. Because of the controversy surrounding Genesis 6, Dr. Noah Hutchings and Dr. Larry Spargimino continued to make their point that the sons of God were indeed angels. Let's look at what some historians have noted down through the centuries on this particular verse. Now, the objections that some have to saying that the sons of God of Genesis 6 who married women and brought offspring of giants upon which Greek mythology was based. That's the context in Genesis 6. The discounted opinion there is that angels don't marry, and Jesus said that, yes, we'd be like the angels of heaven and wouldn't marry in heaven. Well, the subject there are angels of heaven, not angels of the devil, not fallen angels. And these are angels who left their estate. They condescended to a lower order. And let me read what Josephus said of this particular scripture, Genesis 6, 2. Many angels of God accompanied with women and begat sons that proved unjust and despisers of all that were good on account of their own strength. 
These men did what resembled the acts of those whom the Cretans called giants. And he goes on to say the bones of these men are still shown to this day. Now, in the time of Josephus, the bones of these giants were still in evidence. You can't find any today, maybe, or very few in any event. They're in the Middle East because they've either decayed or someone has taken them. But in the days of Josephus, the bones of those giants were still evidence. They could still find those bones. And they were bones of huge men. And Josephus said they were the offspring of angels who cohabited with women, and they bore these monstrosities. So now we have to look at Josephus. Josephus didn't have a doctrinal problem here. There was no reason for him to argue with anyone over whether these were giants or not giants. Evidently, everyone in Josephus' day, all the rabbis and everyone, interpreted the Hebrew that these were angels. In fact, the Hebrew indicates quite plainly they were angels. And we have to give Josephus at least the credit of knowing his own Hebrew language. He was a learned man, a scholar. We must conclude from the words of Josephus that these were indeed angels. Dr. Hutchings, it's interesting that those who are opposed to our position would claim they're not angels, but they're the godly line of Seth. Now, it's interesting that there is no evidence stated or implied that the line of Seth was ever godly. And when they talk about the godly line of Seth, I'd like them to show me where the Bible says the line of Seth was godly. In fact, only one person was translated from the judgment to come, that's Enoch, and only eight were given the protection of the ark. So no one beyond Noah's immediate family could in any sense be considered godly. And I've heard so many things about the godly line of Seth going into the daughters of men and so forth. Well, there is absolutely no biblical proof for this, but there is proof, as we've shown, that the Hebrew bene Elohim, meaning the sons of God, really means angels. Again, the writers of Marginal Mysteries were not afraid to tackle controversial subjects. Their chapter on the giants of Genesis 6 led to a follow-up chapter about another controversial subject, UFOs and aliens. UFOs have been seen by an increasing number of individuals around the world. Many of the sightings have been reported by military pilots. I mean, these are people who fly jet planes, who are trained in observation, who have engineering and aeronautical skills. So military pilots have seen those things, airline pilots, radar operators, and military personnel on ships on the surface of the ocean. So I don't think that there is any question that UFOs exist. The real question is not, do they exist, but rather, what are they? Are they spacecraft from another galaxy? Are they demon spirits? Do they represent beings from another dimension of existence? And how do they fit into Bible prophecy? I think these are the real issues. The former host of this program, the late Dr. Noah Hutchings, claimed to have seen a UFO when he was a teenager. Let's return to the radio archives and listen as Noah shares that story. In 1937, I was only 14 years old, we lived on a farm at Hugo, Oklahoma, or about five miles out of Hugo, and I was coming across the pasture to my house, cut across to save a few steps, and the sun was going down, or it had just gone down, in the west. And suddenly, from the east, over a forest to the east, here come a light. 
and it was traveling at great speed, and when it got directly over me, it just stopped. It didn't slow down. It just stopped. And I looked, and I thought, what in the world is that? And then about five seconds, here come another one, and then a third one, and they all lined up, and they were kind of white and pinkish and bluish, and I sat and watched them until it got dark. I kept waiting for them to move. I wasn't afraid because I'd never heard of a UFO at that time. So finally I went in my home. My mother had, I think, some cornbread and buttermilk. We lived on the farm. We usually had a light supper in the evening meal. And so I ate and went back out to see if they were still there. And they were gone. I have never forgotten that. This was something that could not have been made by a human, yet it was operated, evidently, by some kind of intelligence. After that, even in the South Pacific, World War II, I was a radar operator, and I looked and looked and searched the heavens for some sign of UFO. I never saw one. I could even trace a pelican that had swallowed a piece of chewing gum tinsel. But I never saw an UFO after that, but I know and am convinced that UFO exists. Could the increase in UFO activity be part of the deception of the end times? The Bible doesn't directly address the issue, but it is certainly plausible, as Dr. Larry Spargimino explains. Well, you know, we should also point out that UFOs could very well bring in the New World Order like a flood. And, of course, the New World Order is something that we see in prophecy. If Earth dwellers were convinced that there was a major threat from alien forces equipped with high-tech weaponry, that perceived threat could drive all of mankind, irrespective of race or religion or political ideology, that perceived threat could drive everybody into a common union for mutual support. And that could really just touch off the one world order immediately and, and everybody coming together. All national distinctions would disappear. Significantly, this is what is already happening. You see, the search for extraterrestrials is already having a unifying effect on many in the world. And I'm speaking about SETI, S-E-T-I, that stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. It involves the use of a special screensaver on your personal computer that has the capacity to analyze sounds from outer space. Participants in the SETI program simply leave their computers on overnight, and the next morning they can check their computer to see if they've picked up anything overnight. Now, there are about a million people from all over the world looking for extraterrestrial life, and they all report that the reason why they're doing this is because the thought of finding life out there will take us off of our problems here and bring all of mankind together and that we can be one big happy family, no matter what our religion, what our ideology, whether we're communist, whether we're Buddhist, whether we're Shintoist or whatever. So we can see how the UFO phenomenon could very well be propelling us with an almost irresistible force into a new world arrangement. And of course, when that happens, the stage is set for the coming of the Antichrist. One of the chapters in Marginal Mysteries examines the mystery of monsters. Let's listen again as Dr. Noah Hutchings and Dr. Larry Spargimino share their thoughts on the Loch Ness Monster. One of the famous mystery monsters is Nessie, or the Loch Ness Monster. Loch Ness, or Lake Ness, is a deep, dark lake in the highlands of Scotland, and it is the largest freshwater lake by volume 
in Great Britain and the third largest lake in Europe. Now, the waters of this lake is murky because of the suspended particles of peat which lower visibility to only a few feet. And the water at the bottom is anaerobic, which means that there is no oxygen of sufficient quality to support either plant or animal life. And animals and people who have drowned in Loch Ness have never returned to the surface because of this feature. But many have reported sightings about this Loch Ness monster, and you've seen them on many uh, television programs. If you watch the scientific channels or the Discovery Channel, they deal with the Loch Ness monster over and over and over. But what about this, Dr. Spargamino? Could you tell us some more about it and such sightings? Yes, there is a very long history of sightings. Actually, it goes back to A.D. 565. Legend has it that St. Columba, the Irish missionary, was walking along the shore of the lake. And on a particular day, he met a group of people who were burying a man. The man had been attacked and mauled by some kind of a monster in the lake. Now, Columba had a disciple whose name was Looney. Looney swam to the other side of the lake to get a boat that belonged to Columba. And while Looney was swimming across the lake, a huge monster surfaced. And uh, according to the biography of St. Columba, which was written around uh, or in the 8th century A.D., the monster was about to devour Looney when Columba shouted at the monster and said, Go thou no further, nor touch the man. Go back at once. The biographer states that when the monster heard the voice of St. Columba, the monster fled away more quickly than if it had been pulled by ropes. Now, that was the first reported sighting. As I indicated, it goes back to A.D. 565. There were no further sightings until the 1800s. However, it would appear that the northern European tribes always knew about large sea creatures. As a matter of fact, one historian points out that the Vikings must have been uh, very familiar with saltwater sea serpents and that they actually model the shapes of their vessels after the bulky bodies of the long tapering necks and the small heads. So there's quite a, a, a history of sightings that go back almost 1,500 years. I certainly hope that you have enjoyed hearing portions from this interview recorded in 2000 from Larry Spargimino and Noah Hutchings as they discuss their book, Marginal Mysteries. Before we close out today, let me tell you about another mystery. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 3.16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. The mystery of godliness is that God came to this earth in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He went to an old rugged cross and he died in agony and shame. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. But three days later, glory, hallelujah, Jesus rose from the dead and you can have eternal life through faith in Christ. That Jesus would die for a sinner like me is truly a mystery, but it is by no means marginal. Marginal Mysteries is an outstanding book that biblically answers the mystery of the La Brea Tar Pits, Atlantis, UFOs, biblical giants, and much, much more. Order your copy of Marginal Mysteries by calling 1-800-652-1144. 
That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners just like you. Visit swrc.com. That's swrc.com. Dot com.